Once again, it's a joy for Lisa and I to be with you today, and I appreciate you being with us. And if you are visiting with us, we are especially glad that you are here. You'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Just a few minutes, we'll be looking at verses 23 through 26. Hebrews 11, 23 through 26. There's a lot about heaven that we do not know, but if heaven would happen to be like a banquet table with everyone sitting around that great white throne, and you had the choice of choosing two Bible characters from God's Word to sit on either side of you, who might you choose to sit with? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I think on one hand, I would like to have Barnabas because he was such a great encourager. And I'd like to have him on one side. And then I'd either like to have Moses or Joshua on the other side. As they could talk about all the time that they spent with all those people. And all the things that they went through. The Bible has a great deal to say about Moses. And how that he persevered through many obstacles. Leading God's people in to the, toward the promised land. And this morning, I'd like for us to think about four great lessons about his faith that we can learn from today as found here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Let's read those. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. and They were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That's the reading from the New King James Version. First of all, from Moses we learn that faith will prevail when parents risk their lives for their children. There in verse 23 we read about the great act of faith that his parents Amram and Jochebed had in which they risked their lives to keep their son safe from the king of that day. You may recall from Exodus chapter 1 that these were all slaves there in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh trying to cause God's people not to continue to grow, had made that decree in chapter 1, verse 22 of the book of Exodus, that if a male son was born, then they were to be thrown into the river, the Nile River. But every daughter was to be brought forth alive. But the text here reveals that they were not afraid of the king's command. Moffat's translation said they had no dread of the royal decree. And so they hid him. And you may recall that after he got so active, you've had a three-month-old, that you can imagine how you can't tell them just to be quiet. A baby's going to cry. A baby's going to cry at so many different times. And so finally the time came in which they needed to do something about this child. And thus they chose to hid, hide him there in the bulrushes. Acts chapter 7 verse 20 gives us very interesting commentary about this baby Moses. It says that he was well-pleasing to God as a baby. He was fair and beautiful. He was a proper child. 
And so you can see that it was a family affair. Mama would make the little boat with the pitch and such like, and then lay that little baby there in that little boat. Can you imagine the tears that must have flowed as she entrusted that baby, not only in that little boat and the river, but also into God? And then Sister Miriam is nearby, and she's watching to make sure that nothing bad happens. Exodus 2, verse 2, talks about all the work that goes along with it. And then through the providence of God, the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess, coming to wash there at the river, found, finds this little child. And think about the irony of this. Because her father was killing these babies in that very river. Yet here is a Hebrew child that is found in that river, taken out of the river, and brought to his house to live. Certainly you see the providence of God in that regard. And not only that, but Miriam then goes and finds someone to feed and nurture this child. And who better than the very mother? More than likely, Moses would have stayed with his parents until the age of three. Somebody has suggested that as a baby, as he was drinking from his mother's milk, they were also instilling within him the ways of God. Here were parents, maybe the first parents that would not allow the authorities of their day to dictate the future of their son, who were really willing to risk their lives for the betterment of baby Moses. Parents today, the world would desire to be the teachers for our children. They would desire to teach them how to live, how to dress, what to believe, and how to succeed. If we're going to be successful, then we must be their primary teachers. And we, like Amram and Jochebed, must be willing to risk and take whatever efforts it takes to instill in our children the qualities that stay with them long after we are dead and gone. Somebody has well stated that what we do not fight against in this life, our children will embrace. If we do not fight against and tell our children why this is wrong and why that is wrong, ultimately our children will embrace those things, not knowing any difference. We can only imagine in those first few years when Moses was still in the home of his parents, that they were saying, now you may be going to that palace and they may be feeding you all kinds of food, but remember, you are a child of God. And you're to respect God in His way long after you grow up and become an adult. Our children today need to hear about proper respect for others, those in authority. They need to understand what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. They need to understand the importance of the name of God and how it's to be used as a sacred way in all of life. They need to understand about the importance of God's Word and the church and worship services. Because if we do not teach them those qualities, then in years to come, they will not embrace it. 
parents who spend time and sacrifice and effort to their children with their children will often have great dividends be paid because of it. I heard several years ago about a mother that was bringing her children to church services on a Wednesday night. That's a wonderful thing, but what was so unique about this was that in an effort to get everybody dressed and to get everybody in their Bibles and to get in the car, that only when she got to church services did she realize she didn't have any shoes on. She was completely barefoot. Now, someone would have thought that, you know, she needs to go back home and dress accordingly and appropriately. But in order to do that, she'd either be late for church or it'd be too late to be able to go back. And so instead, she thought it was far more important for her to be at church with her children, barefoot, than not at all. When she realized that it was there, she just sort of smiled about it and just kept on walking. What was she saying to her children? God's family is important. Being with God's people is important, even if by chance you forget your shoes. You see, in life, more is caught than taught. It's not what we say, but it's what we do in life that says so much about us. Paul talked about that in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. Then when in the near the end of his life, he talked about the life of Timothy. He said, when I call to remembrance, that unfeigned, literally that word means genuine, faith that is in you, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and now I'm persuaded it's in you also. That generational faith, perhaps without the help of a Christian father, Timothy had a grandmother who lived that faith on a daily basis. It dwelt, it lived in her life. It transferred in the life of her daughter and now had been transferred into his life. And it was making him the person that he needed to be. That faith is developed when parents are willing to risk their lives, put forth that effort on behalf of their children. But secondly, from Moses we learn that faith will prevail when we choose the right family to live with. When Moses comes of age, the age of 40, he makes that decision that no longer is he going to be a part of Pharaoh's family but rather he's going to company with the people of God. Verse 24 and 25 talks about that. He was no longer the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think about the sadness that she must have had. She had known who this child was. She could tell he was a Hebrew child. She had to realize what her father had commanded about them that ultimately she was going against her own father by bringing this child alive into their very palace. She had given him everything he needed. And now, at the age of 40, he decided that no longer was he going to be seen as her son, but rather he wanted to be known as a part of the family, the people of God. Exodus chapter 2 verse 11 tells us of that foundational time when he made that statement, at least by what he did. 
They went out and he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating up on one of the Hebrews. He defends him, even to the point of taking the man's life. Murder is never right. But by that statement, he was making the point, I'm going to be with my people, not against them. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, a commentary divinely is mentioned about Moses. How that he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And that he was mighty in words and in deeds. You see, Moses had two choices. He could choose the people of Egypt. Egypt was a place that had a great world of culture, refinement, great treasures. Their advancement in, in different arts was amazing. And also because of he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, every passion of his could have been fulfilled. He's a bachelor. He could have anyone or anything he so desired. The other choice was Israel, the people of slavery, poverty, looked down upon as contempt, affliction that was daily a part of their life. These were people that had grievous burdens to bear, wounded hopes, and daily abuse. But in essence, he said no. And he said yes. He said no to what Egypt had to offer him. And he said yes to being a person of God's people. That choice was made. And I'd like to suggest that that choice began way back in those early years when those parents instilled within him the ways of God. When they talked about God in a positive way, when they lifted up the idea, you may go and live there, but we want you to know that you are always a child of God and you need to follow His way. Parents, the decisions that we make in the lives of our children will often help dictate the decisions that they make in life as well. When we choose to put God and His church and His Word first and foremost in our own lives, then it's going to be seen in the lives of our children as well. Remember the statement there in Deuteronomy chapter 6? The words often referred to as the Shema, that a Jewish person would say at least once every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. He says there, and these words which, I, which will be in your heart, you're to teach to your children. But notice that little phrase, these words which are in your heart. We can't teach the ways of God if they're not in our lives. We cannot teach our children where to go unless we are going in the right direction ourselves. Some years ago, a deacon friend of mine came to me with a decision that he had to make. He was a part of a company, and because of what he had done in that company, they wanted to advance him. They wanted to move him to a company up in the northeast. 
It would, job, it would involve more pay. It would involve a more prestigious position. It would involve them moving his whole family up there. And so he went there and he spent some time there. And he came back and he said, Don, I have a decision to make. You know that I have three daughters. You know that our family is around here. You know that we're rooted and grounded in this congregation and in this area. That place offers me a better job. It offers me more money. But there are very few churches of the Lord's people there. And the churches there are small. I've decided that my family needs to stay here because I want them to be rooted and grounded in Christ. Two of those girls ended up going to Free Hardeman University. One of them married a gospel preacher. They have four beautiful children that attend a Christian school there. I think he made the right decision in what he chose to do. You see, the decisions that we make today will impact our children's lives for many years to come. And ultimately, the choices that they make are based upon the choices that we make. I understand that up in the Northwest, there are a lot of logging roads. And sometimes on those logging roads, you'll find the sign, choose your ruts carefully. You will be in them for the next 20 miles. The choices that we make today often impact us for years and years to come. That's why we've got to make sure that our children are with the very best of people around them and that they are surrounded by Christian influences. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 talks about not being deceived because evil communications can corrupt good morals or manners. Someone pers one person has put it, if you run with wolves, you're going to howl like them. If you run with the wrong crowd, ultimately that's going to have an influence upon you. The Bible tells us a terrible story in 1 Samuel about a man by the name of Amnon who wanted to do terrible things with his half-sister. And the Bible says that he had a friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab comes up with a terrible scheme whereby he could have his way with his sister, all because of his own evil desires, fueled by a friend that came up with a plan for him to act it out. How are we being influenced? And what relationship do our children have with the people of God versus the people of the world. We are who we are with. We are who we stay with. Years ago, there was a story of a New England town of some dogs that had killed 123 sheep all in one night. These were dogs that had once protected the sheep. And yet, in one night's time, 123 sheep had been killed by these pack of dogs. Initially, they found out that there was only one dog that had started the killing. But they had taught the other dogs to follow suit. And so in one night, they had wiped out several herds through their actions. 
As the story goes, the dogs were hunted down and they were all killed. They didn't just look for the ringleader. They didn't ask if they were sorry, but they killed all of them because they realized that if you killed once, you can kill again. The decisions that we make in life today, parents, will often dictate the future decisions that our children will make in years to come. The Chinese have a statement, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. It's those decisions that we make today that impact the decisions that we make tomorrow. Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Thirdly, from the life of Moses, we learn that faith will prevail when we see sin for what it is, momentary, sensual pleasure. Notice what it says there in verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Job chapter 20 verse fifteen. Verse 5 says that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. I would lie to you if I were not to say, based upon God's word, that there is pleasure in sin, but only for a short period of time, only for a sensual period of time, because there are great consequences that take place in the sins of our lives. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 15 says, Good understanding gives favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. Why is it that the pleasures of sin are only for a season, only for a fleeting moment of time? First of all, because every sin has a consequence. Every sin has a consequence because of that sin. Romans 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. When a person commits a sin, he has violated a relationship with God and often with others. Whether it's a crime or an ungodly relationship, that line of communication has been broken and there is a payment or a consequence that has to be paid because of the sin that has been committed. In Numbers 32, verse 23, Moses would say, but if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Later on, that same idea is found in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. When he says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit, will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Sin is only for a short period of time because of the consequences that it brings forth. Secondly, because the addiction of sin will break a person down. I've been told that a snort of cocaine gives you a high that lasts for eight and a half minutes. But for those who have to continue, they have to get more 
in order for it to continue their addiction. And ultimately, it brings the breakdown of the physical body and the mental body and all the other things that go along with it. I'm thinking about a fellow now under the age of 40 that's in the process of dying because he cannot put down an alcohol bottle. Doctors have said we have done all that we can. Medically, there is nothing else that we can do. If you continue to drink, you're going to destroy your liver and there is nothing that we can do. Sin has such an addiction on people's lives, such a hold on people's lives, and ultimately it can cause death, physical and certainly spiritual. Perhaps that fellow's first drink was free to him. Somebody offered him a bottle of beer and thought everything was well. But folks, we need to remember, there are no free rides on the devil's playground. The first one may be free, but after that, he's got us. And often we are engulfed in sin. Thirdly, the pleasures of sin are but for a season because sin brings an eternity of regret. In Luke chapter 16, there's a story of two men that lived, two men that died, two men that were judged, and two men that were found in different places. Lazarus was found in Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise. The rich man that had everything in this life now was found in torments. He's asking Father Abraham, if you remember the story, for Lazarus to come from where he is to down to where he is and bring a cup of cold water and soothe his tongue from the terrible pain and the fire that he's in. But Father Abraham tells him in verse 25, Son, remember that in your life you received good things and he evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. I think one of the serendipities of those that will be in hell is that they will have great remembrance. He remembered his family. He remembered his five brothers that were no, not following after the ways of God. He remembered Lazarus, what he could have done for him and what he did not do for him. I believe in hell there would be a great deal of remembrance of the choices that people could have made, the decisions they could have made, the times when they could have given their life to Christ, and yet they chose not to do so, and they lost it all. Our Lord would say in Matthew 16, verse 26, For what has a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Faith will prevail when we realize what sin is and the terribleness of it. And then finally, from Moses, we learn that faith will prevail when we do not lose sight of our reward. Verse 26 says, He esteemed the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. The word esteem means to consider to count. He was counting the reproach of Christ, the shame that Christ carried to the cross, the terribleness of what he was doing. Literally that phrase, the reproach of Christ, means to cast 
in one's teeth. It's found in Matthew 27, verse 44, to what the thieves were doing as they were crucified along Christ. It wasn't enough that they too were in agony. They were heaping insults. They were throwing terrible slurs. They were saying terrible things to Jesus in the midst of their own pain and agony. That's what that phrase means. To cut down, to denounce, to speak evil of. Yet Moses, in his wisdom, was saying, I choose the reproach of Christ. I choose that way of the cross, as terrible as it is, to all the treasures that Egypt has to offer me. Think about that monumental statement. Egypt was known for its ability and its knowledge of astronomy, mathematics, other such disciplines. From the King Tut find, we can see all the great treasures and gold that were theirs. And yet he said no to it. One commentator said, Moses went from being addressed as Sir because he was the daughter of Pharaoh to being called the worst of things because he chose the people of God. And why? For he looked for the reward. With all the treasures that Egypt had to offer, it was in pale comparison to following the ways of God and what God had to offer his people. Heaven's not talked about a great deal in the Old Testament, but we know that today for God's people, there is that grand reward of heaven that awaits us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 would say, Don't lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves can break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt, where thieves cannot break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This morning, we've talked about faith. Faith from the life of Moses. Faith from the life of Moses' parents. Folks that were willing to risk their lives for his safety. Folks that were willing to instill in him the ways of God as an early babe and child. Parents, are we showing our children just how ugly, how evil, how terrible sin is? Are we showing to them that God's reward is far greater than anything else that can be offered to us today? Are we living it within our own lives so that they can follow us as we seek to follow Christ? This morning, if you're not a child of God, you cannot leave where you are not going. Perhaps as a parent or a grandparent, or just as a person accountable and responsible for their sin, you realize the need to become a child of God, to believe in Christ with all your heart, to turn from the sins of your life, we call that repentance, to confess the sweet name of Jesus as God's only Son, and then to act upon that faith in that by being baptized to have all our sins washed away. You can do that this very day. Many of you already have made that decision. 
Is there some sin in your life that's leading you away from the church? Is it also leading your family away from God and from the things found in God's Word? Make your life right. Come back home. Allow brethren to pray with you and for you as you confess that wrong. And then begin anew to be the parents or grandparents that God wants you to be to lead your family for generations to come so that ultimately there can be that great reward that we can all have there in heaven. A loving Savior invites you to come to Him right now as we stand and sing.